This is the International Anthony Burgess Foundation podcast. In this episode, Andrew Biswell of the Burgess Foundation explores fictional representations of Jesus Christ with writer Nicholas Graham, author of The Judas Case. We begin with Anthony Burgess's 1979 novel Man of Nazareth, an ambitious account of Jesus' life from the point of view of a fictional Greek merchant. The novel was written at the same time as Burgess's teleplay Jesus of Nazareth, which was filmed by Franco Zeffirelli, with Robert Powell in the lead role. Nicholas Graham also introduces his own book, The Judas Case. Retired spymaster Solomon Eliades is called back into service to investigate the death of Yehuda of Kerioth, better known as Judas Iscariot, the most able undercover agent the Temple Guard has ever produced. Nicholas Graham studied creative writing at Manchester Metropolitan University, He was a member of the Sydney Sussex College Cambridge University team that won BBC Two's University Challenge, Champions Reunited. An early draft of the Judas case won a 2016 Northern Writers Award. Nicholas lives with his partner in a remote coastal village in Cumbria. You can follow Nicholas on Twitter at ThatNickGraham and you can read his blog about writing the Judas case at thejudascase.blogspot.com. The Judas Case by Nicholas Graham is out now from your favourite place to buy books. Here's Andrew Biswell of the Burgess Foundation, who spoke to Nicholas Graham in July 2022. Well, it's a pleasure to have Nicholas Graham as our guest on the Anthony Burgess Foundation podcast. And uh, Nicholas is here for two reasons, to talk about Burgess's novel about the life of Christ, Man of Nazareth, Uh, and also to say something about his new novel, The Judas Case, which takes place within the same broad landscape of the first century and the the life and the death of Christ. Nick, welcome, first of all. Thank Um, you, Andrew. Great to be here. uh, Thanks for agreeing to to talk to us about about Burgess and about your own work. Now, Burgess's novel, Man of Nazareth, is not that often read or commented on these days, and one of the reasons for that, I think, is that there's been no new edition since the paperback came out in 1980, which is quite some time ago. Um, so for the benefit of anyone who doesn't know it, how would you summarise that Burgess book, first of all? Burgess invents a fictional narrator, um, Azor, who uh, tells us that he's simply recounting what he has recently seen and heard uh, of the events in Jerusalem. Um, which is, to to begin with, quite a clever device because it means Burgess can slightly distance himself and allow Azor to go on his own journey of understanding. And what you get, or what we get, is effectively Burgess's curation of selected narratives from the Gospels. And he does some very clever things with them. I mean, he opens out Um, the political background with Herod and the Romans and the high priests who are locked in this kind of slightly gruesome three-way conspiracy in which they're all looking after themselves. But uh, this this is sort of thrown into crisis by uh, Jesus's arrival in Jerusalem at uh, Passover. Uh, And he presents a Jesus who is... um, immensely sympathetic. He's an absolutely awesome intellect. He's profoundly wise and loving. And Burgess treats the whole subject with, um, I think, due reverence and solemnity. Um, 
and it's interesting to think of the context in which he was writing the book. Um, in the late 70s, um, archaeology was just beginning to shed light on the practical mechanics of crucifixion and lead, leading us to realise that a lot of what we thought uh, and understood from traditional iconography was probably physically not quite right. Uh, there was still a lot of deference towards organised religion at the time, which I think has changed a lot. Um, it was just before the life of Brian, uh, which I believe that Burgess was a big fan of. And it was sometime before a group of American biblical scholars called the Jesus Seminar uh, convened to vote on which, uh, verse by verse, through the Gospels, trying to come to a consensus view on which were historic, reflected historical reality and which didn't. Um, and I think but the way Burgess spends a lot of time um, with the pre-story of John the Baptist and the family um, really opens out the narrative in a, in a fascinating way and gives it context. And it also means that Burgess actually addresses some of the big moral issues that you would expect from the author of A Clockwork Orange. He grapples with the question of original sin and whether humanity is inherently evil, what this tells us about free will uh, and perfectibility. Um, and Azor himself, as a narrator, goes on a really interesting journey from initial scepticism to a, a much more nuanced and fully understanding viewpoint. Um, Azor starts with, I think, the, the way of looking at this is the, the arc of development that Burgess maps out with the two great uh, miracles that are unique to the Gospel of John, um, the water into wine at the marriage at Cana in Galilee, which Azor uh, makes clear is a, is a magician's confidence trick, and he makes sure that we see through it. Uh, and then, the, uh, much later in the narrative, um, the raising of Lazarus from the dead, which is presented as unadorned and verified fact. So Azor goes on quite a journey himself as he grapples with this material. Um, and I'd say that it's a real shame that we've not had a new edition, because it would be uh, it would be great if it was, I think, more widely read and more widely known. It's a crackingly good piece of biblical fiction. You're quite right. It is a, a sort of lost Burgess classic in many ways, um, which I think survives only in French translation. It's a very good French translation by Georges Belmont, who was very moved by the book and thought very highly of it. Um, but, you know, hopefully it will come back fairly soon within the Irwell edition of Burgess's works. Now, looking into the, the history of Man of Nazareth, the early drafts in the archive show us that he thought about, quite seriously, narrating Man of Nazareth in a kind of nadsat, uh, which is to say an invented language based on his study of Hebrew. Um, and there are some early fragments that are written in this, this kind of Hebrew sat um, uh, idiom dialect. Burgess has great fun, I always think, in Man of Nazareth. Um, for example, the, the angels um, come on and, and they speak. Uh, of course they do. And there are these odd uh, literary references as well. At one point, he quotes a big section from um, Milton's poem Paradise Regained um, where Christ is being tempted in the desert and you're almost invited to sort of see the joins as he's kind of pasting his text together from a variety of different places. One of the, the other purposes of the book, quite serious one, is to examine the gospel stories 
but I think in ways which are intended to to be provocative and to make readers reconsider a very familiar set of narratives and to to think about them in new ways. As you've said, the figure of this rationalist narrator is very important within that, quite different from the the television adaptation that follows Burgess's novel, The Zeffirelli, because all of that apparatus, that mechanism of the sceptical narrator is, is not there. You know, if you've got Robert Powell strutting around with blue eyes doing miracles, then then you're very much in the moment. But having this kind of fictional frame around the story is much more sophisticated. Uh, yeah, it is, and as a, it it allows Azor as our narrator to, to draw us on his own journey of understanding and and uh, how his views change but i think it's a very good way of cracking the fundamental problem which is common to all historical fiction not just biblical historical fiction though with biblical historical fiction um it, it is probably the, the the greatest example of this challenge which is to be able to peel back the layers of what we think we know and what we thought we understood through 2000 years of received ideas and developed Christian theology and belief to actually make um, a convincing historical narrative in the here and now that is the first century AD, except that it wasn't called the first century AD in those days, of course, um, uh, and to see it through, see the familiar through utterly defamiliarized and fresh eyes and having a rationalist, somebody without formal belief and a certain degree of scepticism is the very obvious and very powerful way uh, of allowing us to see that and 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 giving that giving us that arc of development from scepticism to understanding there's quite a funny reflection on uh, zeffirelli's jesus in you've had your time Burgess says that he diligently delivered his six hours of scripts and then uh, when he came to watch it he thought it really fell off. Uh, he thought Zeffirelli lost interest after the crucifixion, as he didn't care about the resurrection. That was his his kind of you know climactic point, and the rest was all just kind of filler, getting you to the the end credits. But the novel is rather different. I think we should um, defend the novel and uh, and you know try to make a case for it. Now, one other point here: when Burtis is talking about Man of Nazareth, he says one of his aims is to demolish this. Uh, popular myth of gentle Jesus, meek and mild, as he calls it. And indeed, one of his working titles was Christ the Tiger, a quotation from T.S. Eliot, of course, but also an image of Christ as a kind of political revolutionary who's come to sort of overturn everything, beginning with the, the money changes tables in the temple, but, but not ending there. How clearly do you think that revolutionary radical aspect, the political Jesus, comes through in the novel? I think it does, but it does so, again, in a very clever way that asks us to um, re-examine our assumptions about what revolutionary and the political means, because I think in first century AD, what was meant by revolutionary and political was quite a different thing. Burgess works the complexities of the political background very well indeed. It's worth pointing out that the criminal charge that Jesus was executed for was being king of the Jews, tyrannos ton judeon in Greek. 
Um, kings aren't usually revolutionaries. Um, Burgess, I think, makes it pretty clear that the aspect of the message of the overturning of the social order and the first shall be last and the last shall be first is a quite different idea of uh, political revolution from what we would understand and think of in the 20th century. And again, that's um, part of the value of historical fiction uh, doing this in this way. Um, I think that the, the, there's a really interesting speculation here that we, we could go on to, that the idea of if we were to posit that that revolution had happened there and then in first in the first century AD in in Jerusalem at the time, rather than being, um, you, you know, long term postponed into Christian eschatology. Um, how long would Jesus's perfect reign on earth have actually lasted? Would he have lasted longer than, for instance, the Anabaptists in Munster or the Paris Commune? And, and what sort of a, uh, a perfect reign on earth would it be? Jewish eschatological writing of the time is very clear on what um, uh, the, the ideal society is. And it's, it's imagined as a feast, which is probably the sort of ideal society that a peasant society where 98% of the population are permanently on the verge of starvation would imagine as ideal. Um, so I, I like very much the idea of, uh, I'd say, Jesus as uh, an eschatologist, as somebody who's standing at what he believes is the beginning of the end times and the rearrangement and reorganisation of society, um, rather than simply thinking of him in terms of the idea of political revolution as we understand it since 1789 and onwards. Yeah, as you're talking, I'm thinking how resonant that idea is. Um, and it's there in early Bob Dylan as well, that the, the first shall be last and the last shall be first. Shall be first, absolutely. Yeah, it, it's an idea that um, echoes to us down the centuries, I think, from that, uh, uh, from, from that position. Now, Burgess also intended that his novel and the television series that followed it uh, should contain plenty of music. We can see this in the book. He gives us songs and ballads and so forth. And looking into the archive, we find he wrote loads of music for the TV series, which was uh, never used. Now, of course, this is very different from your own approach as a writer. But I wonder, how do you think those songs and ballads change the meaning of, of Man of Nazareth as a novel? Uh, okay, well, full disclosure, um, my other half is a violinist, and if you were to ask her, um, she'd say that you shouldn't ask me anything about music <laughs> whatsoever. But um, Ed, what, one of the things that absolutely fascinated me about Man of Nazareth was not simply uh, Burgess's own settings uh, and music for the uh, for the television series, which it would be wonderful to uh, take out of the archive and, and and be able to listen to. But his brilliant idea that the disciples were themselves musical and used music and song and poetry to transmit the message and to teach and to uh, evangelize. And um, on the one hand, uh, I'd be guessing that in the archive, there are probably Burgess's own settings of the 
um, uh, of, of some of the verse that, and poetry that appears in Man of Nazareth, um, and maybe more, I don't know. What is the other, I think, fascinating idea behind that is the idea that um, there might actually be utterly lost to us examples of um, music and song being used um, either by Jesus and, and the disciples as teaching aids, if you like, um, or um, it, it, in the early Christian movement, in the early Jesus movement, that um, are simply lost to us because when things were written down, um, song and music um, is probably the first thing that doesn't get written down or doesn't survive easily in, as you move from the oral to the written tradition. Um, and that, I think, is one of the one of the great fascinating um, uh, things when you're writing historical fiction about um, the, the, the Bible and the stories of the Gospels is um, the idea of lot that there are lost accounts or lost writings. Um, and in Man of Nazareth, we have effectively uh, the fictional conceit that this is Azor's lost account of um, the story of Jesus. Um, with my own approach in the Judas case, um, we have another uh, approach to um, lost accounts of uh, lost documents of Jesus's ministry and Judas's reports back to his political masters about what he sees and hears in his conversations with Jesus. And of course, it's worth remembering in this context that the, the four canonical gospels are only a part of the surviving um, corpus of work about, uh, and accounts of the gospel. There is a gospel according to Judas, incidentally, um, the conversations between Judas and Jesus, but it's almost certainly written in the late second century AD. So relying on it as a source for a historical fiction in the first century AD and of the time is really probably not a good idea because it violates the, the principle that I've always tried to apply of peeling back the past, uh, 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 the, the sort of post-event layers of accreted belief, assumption and projection, and trying to focus on making something as immediate and uh, authentic as possible in your account. I'm very interested by the idea of these shadowy figures who, of course, present great opportunities to novelists such as Burgess and such as yourself now with the Judas case, because, um, for example, Burgess takes issue with this received idea that Judas is a thief. He says, no, this won't do at all. In his version of the story, Judas Iscariot is a zealot who wants to bring about the downfall of the Roman Empire. He's very kind of clearly politically motivated. Now, your own image of Judas is different again. Perhaps you could tell us something about how you've approached that enigma of Judas, um, actually very indirectly in your novel, by having your main character investigate the circumstances of his death. The Judas case is effectively cast as a detective story in which a um, senior retired old um, uh, detective and secret serviceman, um, Solomon Eliades, is called out of retirement to investigate the, the mysterious death of the, um, the man who was uh, for many years his protege and, and one of his colleagues. 
Judas, Yehuda from Kerioth, um, as he's known in the book. And the the starting point for this as a way into um, approaching this narrative and reimagining the story of the Gospels um, was when you look at what we know or understand about Judas, it's a classic case of what we think we understand is not what the texts actually say. Um, he, Judas is mentioned in, twice in the Gospels and in the Acts of the Apostles, and the accounts don't quite match. There are a number of other references to him in um, sort of very early um, Christian writings in, in the first century AD, which tell, a, a, again, a rather different story that doesn't match what we know from the Gospels. So the idea that there are a lot of unreliable witnesses telling us um, uh, about Judas or about Yehuda from Kerioth um, really provides us with, with a, a completely enigmatic figure who is, I, I, I think, well overdue some reassessment and a reapproach. And uh, many, th this has been tried and done before. Uh, I hasten to add the the, the idea of uh, zealotry uh, and political enthusiasm uh, has been done. But um, the the thing that occurred to me very early on was this absolute thunderbolt thought: What if Judas had been working for the temple police all along? Um, and that provided the opportunity for a completely different understanding of his background, his character and his personality, and provided the opportunity for quite a different story arc, not a story arc from belief and loyalty to um, uh, disbelief, betrayal, uh, and so on, but a story arc from um, somebody who is a mole, somebody who is not what he seems, who then finds that he identifies with um, the the person that he is uh, observing and reporting on, and gets into a very much more complicated relationship of belief and doubt, um, and what he is going to do about this, and how he is going to resolve his own uh, uh, contradictions. The novel uh, spends uh, a certain amount of time uh, considering um, the, the, the the psychology of. Um, the hidden spy, the, the the reporter of actions, the man who is not what he seems, and the idea that he might, as the saying I use in the novel, cross the river and become identified entirely with the interests of the uh, the people he's uh, re reporting on, a, a kind of first century AD version of Stockholm Syndrome. Uh, I should add at this point that uh, the idea that um, Judas might have been working for the secret police uh, is not actually an original one. Amos Oz um, suggests it um, in his novel Judas, which is not actually a historical novel. It's it's set in the present day. Um, but it, it provided a way of um, assembling all sorts of different voices, narratives, viewpoints, uh, as Solomon, our detective, our narrator, uh, begins to discover uh, the truth about the person that um, he, he, he'd 
recruited into the service, that he'd trained, that had been one of his uh, greatest and most capable agents. Um, and that gives us, I, I, I think, an absolutely fascinating um, arc of revelation and development um, that allows us to look at um, the, the the background material, the gospels, and, and the, narr the narration of Jesus's teaching and his passion um, through a completely new and fresh set of eyes. Now, the story of your novel unfolds against this backdrop of Roman occupation. Obviously, we're in a colonial situation, and uh, one of the things I liked was the, the the impression that everyone is always conscious of this, even if they're not talking about it. It's always the, the threat is around the corner. It's it's like um, I compare it to you know having toothache. It's always there, even if you're not directly sort of speaking about it. Now, I'm very interested in these tensions you reveal or intuit between the Roman authorities, for example, and the temple police. And uh, I'd like to know more about that. Was that something that you, you, you thought much about when you were plotting the novel? Um, yes, it, 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 it was a subject of, of great thought and, and I spent a lot of time think, thinking through the logic of this. One of the very deep roots of this story uh, and this goes back many, many years, is an interview that was carried out with um, a French paratroop colonel who'd been the colonel of the paratroopers um, uh, who are portrayed in the novel The Centurions, uh, the great novel about the French presence in Vietnam. Um, and the, um, the, the action of the, the the French paratroopers at Tian Bien Phu in, I think, 1954 or thereabouts. Um, and this paratroop colonel was interviewed in retirement about his experience fighting a, against a colonial insurgency in Southeast Asia. And <clears throat> at one point, the interviewer asks him, um, sir, you are a, you're a devout Catholic. Um, imagine that you had been a centurion not in Vietnam, but in the first century AD in Palestine. Um, what would you have done about Jesus Christ? And without missing a beat, he responded, I would have had him quietly assassinated while he was still up in Galilee. Um, and that seemed to me to provide really quite a powerful way of um, looking at the political context or, and the idea of revolutionary um, thought and religious thought being something that, uh, that that's slightly different from our contemporary understanding. Uh, and, to see, and I thought, right, to see this through the eyes of a member of the local elite, Solomon is a Greek-speaking Jew, highly educated, uh, but with a degree of scepticism about the political project of his masters, about the political project of the Romans. Um, he, he hardly ever refers to them as the Romans. He refers to them as our good friends, which is uh, a, a term very deliberately loaded with ambiguity uh, uh, and irony. But to be able to see the narrative through the eyes of the local elite who are responsible have been given the task of being responsible for security and good order in society by their political masters, uh, the Romans, um, made it 
a much more equivocal and ambiguous thing. And as soon as you're talking about equivocation and ambiguity, um, the idea of seeing it through the eyes of effectively the secret service, um, in which uh, a world in which nothing is quite what it seems, um, opens up uh, all sorts of other possibilities because um, spoiler alert coming um, where if you've got two secret service organizations operating the Roman and the the Jewish um, both with sleeper agents in Jesus's followers this opens up all sorts of possibility for complication double dealing deception and in terms of the approach to a first person narrative uh, it then opens up the idea um, that uh, our narrator um, may not always be telling us everything that he knows and everything that is in his background and everything uh, about his understanding of what is going on. So this became a very powerful engine for the fiction. Now, one of the great successes of your novel, I think, is the way in which you managed to work around the four Gospels uh, and focus on life as people might have experienced it in the first century. Now, how did you assemble that social and cultural portrait of the time? This required really quite wide background reading on the times uh, uh, we're we're dealing with. And looking at things from the perspective of personal lives and social and political and imperial background and how those two things collide um, was, to be blunt, not not an easy thing. Um, The obvious sources outside the canonical Gospels for um, everyday life, I suppose, are few and far between. I I read um, Flavius Josephus's The Jewish War and um, The History of the Jews, which uh, incidentally is very good for giving you an idea of um, what people in the first century, people like Solomon, um, uh, Solomon Eliades, would regard as being their own view of their history rather than our view of their history. Um, But uh, I I read widely among recent and not so recent biblical scholarship. There's there's a brilliant book um, by a man called John Dominic Crossan called the historical Jesus, the life of a Mediterranean Jewish peasant, uh, which puts a lot of what what we know in the context of what one might call everyday uh, peasant life in the Middle East and the constraints of that society and how um, everyday life w- would be experienced and how you would relate to uh, the other men in your village, those around you, and so on. The other sort of set of sources. I I looked at the writings of of a number of biblical archaeologists and scholars uh, and and the picture that this um, sort of confirmed and elaborated was uh, one of extraordinary and immense variety of belief, practice and an experience. And and, And the impact of the introduction of Roman ideas and Roman practices, particularly in things like elite burials and, and the idea of um, uh, leaving bodies for some time, gathering their bones and then uh, putting them in a 
um, a, a casket for final interment and so on has an obvious reference point with uh, the nub of the uh, of the narrative of of the death and resurrection um, uh, and so on. Now, how useful, as you were preparing to write this book, did you find other people's novels about this period in history? Or were, were the non-fiction sources more rewarding when it came to sort of building that landscape? Um, the, the non-fiction stories were, were essential, uh, sources were essential for building the landscaping and getting as broad and deep a understanding of society and everyday thought and consciousness. I also read widely among other historical fictions, not simply in specifically in biblical or New Testament uh, terms, but the wider portrayal of the ancient world. And I went back and uh, reread uh, Gore Vidal's Julian, which for my money is still absolutely the most splendid book written about the ancient world. Um, and for those who don't know it, I strongly encourage reading it because it's it's another uh, novel that plays with the idea of there being narrators who are telling us about what they have seen and heard. And it um, asks us to reassess what we thought was going on, albeit for from a period 300 years later than the one we're dealing with now. Um, another cherishable emblematic piece of fiction that I think is a crackingly good way into the authenticity of everyday experience is David Malouf's book, An Imaginary Life, which is about Ovid's exile um, uh, up on the Black Sea uh, when he's thrown out of Rome by the the Emperor Augustus. Uh, And that that, that is just wonderful. Um, In terms of fiction about um, uh, the Gospels or set against the background uh, of the Gospels, I I think these fall into two pretty wide categories. Uh, One is that that, that there is a lot of quite... um, problematic stuff, which, um, to be blunt, has probably been written um, with the aim of expounding a particular theological truth or um, from the point of view of a particular set of beliefs, rather than paying close attention to the reality of everyday life. Um, There are a number that um, I, I found really very good indeed because they take us into an authentic experience uh and there's a brilliant uh book by uh, i think an australian writer called christos Tsiolkas, uh called damascus which is about the apostle paul uh, there's also uh, a a very good account of um a fictional account of uh, jesus's story by naomi alderton called the liar's gospel uh which poor does a crackingly good job of portraying uh village peasant life in 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 first century galilee um uh that was re- really a revelation um the other no- historical novel taking elements of of biblical narrative that um I, you know i i also found uh useful because it allows you to step back and rethink your assumptions is anita diamond's the red tent which is about jacob and his sons um uh, and 
the, the experience of the, the early patriarchs seen from the woman's perspective. And again, that, that was just crackingly good. There also, um, if you don't mind my saying so, there seems to be uh, another debt here to, to John le Carre and his novels about Cold War espionage. And uh, first of all, I, I'm interested to find out how much of the atmosphere of those books you found useful to your story, but also what are the difficulties of transposing that backward into the first millennium? Yeah, there are difficulties. I mean, f- full disclosure, I'm a great admirer of Le Carre and, and, and his fiction. Um, and when you're creating a fictional world um, in the first century and inventing not one but two fictional secret intelligence services, um, it, it was quite fun to kind of reimagine ideas of practical tradecraft, some of the cues of which, you know, one, one, one takes from... Uh, Le, Le Carre um, and put them into that context. Um, I very rapidly found that I had to do some, um, you know, really quite severe editing on um, inappropriate use of anachronistic terms, um, which may sound stunningly obvious, but um, became, but, but uh, you, you know, became obviously necessary. Um, There are some things that we can plausibly assume, I think, that intelligence services uh, the world over and forever have done in particular ways. Uh, I mean, for instance, um, encipherment and secret messages. Uh, We do know from the history uh, that um, the the Romans used a very simple uh, cipher based on a three-letter Tra- uh, uh, transposition. Julius Caesar used it in uh, his Gallic Wars, uh, where A becomes D and B becomes E and C becomes F and so on. And, and that, that's how you send coded messages. Um, I, I've taken the liberty in the Judas case of, of giving um, Solomon and his colleagues a more uh, sophisticated approach to encipherment. Uh, with uh, a double transposition cipher, uh, which is straight out of Le Carre. The mathematics that are required for that were known to the Greeks, but we're pretty certain that nobody actually thought to um, use it, at least as far as we know. Who knows? Maybe maybe they did and nothing survives. Um, But that was a, a reasonable piece of license in extending into the fictional world. Uh, in terms of ensuring that um, the, the, the terms used are, are, are appropriate for the times, uh, we don't have couriers. We have angels, angelos, a messenger. Um, uh, and I, I think that secret services at all times have probably had um, you, you know, brothels and safe houses and networks of agents. And uh, if, if they don't, in the first century have listening devices they certainly eavesdrop on people through 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 thin walls and 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 things of that sort so it it was a question of rethinking the practicalities of how you go about um gathering information and transmitting it and storing it um and i've, I've invented a 
uh, a repository of uh, uh, the secret, the, the Jewish secret services, temple guard uh, uh, observations, and and uh, uh, an, an information in in uh, a, a room below the temple, uh, which was uh, put put together and in, invented and devised by a completely fictional librarian from the um, from the great library of at, of Alexand at Alexandria who came to work for the service called Theodore Theodore the indexer um, uh, I, I have no idea whether any of this um, uh, could conceivably turn out to have actually been the case but I think it's uh, uh, a, a a plausible piece of uh, uh, of, of license to uh, uh, to devise um, a, a fictional secret service behaving in a way that would have been appropriate for them at the time, but is maybe not completely unrecognisable from our own contemporary representations of what the world of the shadows does. Final question is really about what happens next. The Judas case is the first volume in a series of novels about Jerusalem. What can you tell us about the the next volume? Um, well, I hope it will be. Um, the The years between thirty and seventy A.D. Um, are were, were very obviously years of profound change and upheaval, and the time from the crucifixion of and the, the ministry and crucifixion of Jesus through to the destruction of the temple by Titus and Vespasian in 70 AD is a period of history where we're still living today with its consequences in one way or another. So I would very much like to write more um, fictional accounts through that period. Um, there is, I very much hope, going to be a next uh, installment, Solomon's Vineyard, which will continue the stories of Solomon and Zenobia, uh, his wife, and the story of the followers of Jesus uh, as the development of their community in the immediate aftermath of uh, the crucifixion uh, occurs. Um, there will be several more murders to investigate, and Solomon uh, will be continuing his um, uh, rather gruesome and deadly rivalry with Marcus, um, the head of the Roman uh, version of the Secret Service uh, in Jerusalem. Uh, and there'll probably be a lot more about vineyards and brothels as well. Excellent. Well, we'll look forward to the, the, the next volume. In the meantime, we can enjoy uh, the first volume, the, the Judas case, which is out in paperback now. Nicholas, thank you very much for joining us and for sharing so much about your your research and your um, your, your writing process um, and uh, and about Burgess's uh, fictional life of Jesus as well. Um, uh, thank you. It's been a pleasure. Uh, Andrew, thank you very much indeed. This this has been a real pleasure. Thank you. You've been listening to the International Anthony Burgess Foundation podcast. The Judas Case by Nicholas Graham is out now from all good bookshops. For more about Anthony Burgess and to find out how you can support the work of the Burgess Foundation, visit www.anthonyburgess.org. If you've enjoyed this episode, don't forget to leave us a review and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.